The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Does the Christian's belief that the Bible is without error require holding that God created in six 24-hour periods and that the earth is roughly 6,000 years old? So we are in the midst of a series that's raising big and small questions of the faith. And you ask the questions, and I'm supposed to answer them as best as I can from the Bible in a way that I pray honors our Christ. Let's pray together. Trinitarian God, you have created and uphold all things, working, Father, you working through your Son, by your Spirit, we want to understand more how. Why? We want to gain clarity about where the limits are for our own walk with you and what we're supposed to hold in a sea of chaos regarding the relationship of science and the Bible. Hearing so many different voices, and today we want to hear yours. And I personally, as a teacher, want to be careful not to overstep. So I ask for clarity and for help. I pray that you would be our guide this week and next week as we wrestle with this significant question. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that your word is clear. Glory of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It may be noteworthy that as I do my Old Testament survey year after year with my students, I don't address this question in the context of our main classroom. Because Genesis 1 and following is not about this question. There is a sermon bound up in Genesis 1. The one who wrote it, I believe, is Moses, and he wrote it to an audience that was struggling to live and not die. The audience that first receives Genesis 1 is the the audience of the wilderness who are going step by step. Oh, do you think God's going to lead us to mom and dad's grave? My brother's grave, my uncle's grave. Israel was a walking mortuary in the midst of the wilderness. Forty years of death, death, death. And it's to that audience that God gives Genesis 1. Why did he put this chapter up front? And I will say, it wasn't first and foremost to tell Israel where they came from. That story starts in Genesis 2-4. In Genesis 2-4, man and woman are not created yet. 
And then the story begins in Genesis 2, 4, and it carries all the way to the end of Revelation. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 hangs out at the front of our Bible as an introduction, a lens for understanding who is our God. Who are we? Where are we? What's the problem with this world? And even hints toward the solution. Now, this question, nevertheless, is significant, and I have a 35 or 40 page appendix that I give my students that they are welcome to read, and often me and the other Old Testament professor who has a different view about these matters than I do uh, stretch out over a two or three hour period during the lunch window at Bethlehem College and Seminary, and the two of us share our own ideas, and then we banter back and forth and answer questions from our students. It's a very significant question because the world intersects with the word in a day, on a daily basis. And whether you're in a public school or homeschooling or private school, you're always wrestling with how should I respond to my kids? What are the, the boundary lines that we can go this far and no further? And, and that's why these questions are significant. And that's why I'm not afraid to tackle it, even though it's a very big deal. So I want to be clear up front on a few things. First of all, let's go over our elders' affirmation of faith, which is also the Bethlehem College and Seminary affirmation of faith, which I don't just affirm, I embrace joyfully. So let's consider how we as a church have approached this question first. And this is going to be at least a two-week, if not a three-week issue, wrestling with both the 624-hour period question and the age of the earth question. This is nothing I can just blow through super fast. We're going to have our Bibles open, wrestling with the text. So here's our Elder Affirmation of Faith 4.1. We believe that God created the universe and everything in it out of nothing by the word of his power. Having no deficiency in himself nor moved by any incompleteness in his joyful self-sufficiency, God was pleased in creation to display his glory for the everlasting joy of the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. First thing I want to note is that this suggests or states the universe is a divine creation, not an accident. And that goes for everything. Everything is created by God, right now even, being upheld by the word of his power. If God stops speaking, we stop existing. That's how big our God is. And we're talking about everything. That's what our Elder Affirmation affirms. Second implication it was out of nothing. God was the only pre-existent reality before the universe. He created things, the Latin term ex nihilo, out of nothing. So there was God, and then there was something other than God, and that something other than God that includes us is fully dependent on him. And prior to that something other than God, all there was was God. So the big mover at the beginning is God, not 
accident. Third implication. God created the universe not because he had a need. He didn't need us. He was doing fine in eternity past, just delighting in his Trinitarian godness. But he was pleased. Pleased to overflow his delight in himself in the creation of a world that he takes great pleasure in. So I say, God created the universe not out of need, but out of pleasure. And The Elder Affirmation of Faith, if you've never read it, it's just a beautiful document. It's 12 pages without footnotes and about 45 pages with footnotes. And all the footnotes are scriptures that are just listed out. So you can go, and I've taken all the footnotes out, I think. Um, but there's probably, I don't know, uh, say a dozen footnotes in this one little point, And all those footnotes might have multiple verses supporting every claim. Now... All of us are on the same page here. Now, how does the Elder Affirmation of Faith wrestle with or address the issues of creationism? We affirm the Creator. We identify creation. But how about creationism? Creationism is a different word. This is about theories of how everything worked its way out. And here's all all that the Elder Affirmation of Faith says. And it's very deliberate in what it says and what it does not say. We believe that God directly created Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from his side. We believe that Adam and Eve were the historical parents of the entire human race, that they were created male and female equally in the image of God without sin, that they were created to glorify their maker, ruler, provider, and friend, by trusting his all-sufficient goodness, admiring his infinite beauty, enjoying his personal fellowship, and obeying his all-wise counsel, and that in God's love and wisdom, they were appointed differing and complementary roles in marriage as a type of Christ and the church. Implications. Number one, humans were not the result of an evolutionary process, but a distinct special creation. I think that's what is demanded by the wording of the Elder Affirmation of Faith. That we as a church are saying there are limits to what our elders can affirm. And in, in declaring that God directly created Adam and Eve from the dust of the ground and Eve from his side, the elders are, are, are making a claim that our church leadership will not affirm evolutionary process as, a cli as climaxing in mankind, but rather what we're affirming is a distinct, special creation for humanity that sets them apart from any other creature. Not just a point in time where all of a sudden, in the development of the process, now they've arrived, but rather out of dust, Rather than through an evolutionary process, mankind came into being. That the Bible, when it says that, is not just speaking figuratively, but it's actually talking about a, a very specific reality in space and time where God entered in and 
all of us have enjoyed the same pattern. You know, if you've got to go to the beach, you, you begin to shape things with your hands. And God was the first sandcastle builder, and then all, well, there was a person, not a whale, or, well, he did the same thing with the animals, but the, he, he shaped this person, and all of a sudden, he breathes into it the breath of life, and the man becomes a living being. And then he took a nap, and God took an actual rib, a physical rib, out of his side, and from that shaped a woman. That, that this isn't just mere poetry, though it's highly artistic in its description, but that it's actual. The elders are making a claim here. And so it's good for you as a body to understand where the elders have come down. Now, I will just make a statement that the elders have come down on a lot of things in our elder affirmation that are not declaring that you hold a different view. It's heresy. We say we are Baptists in our elder affirmation. And we have some of the dearest brothers and sisters that are in association with us that are not Baptists, that are Rather than being a credo-baptist, they are pedo-baptists. They baptize children. We have so many Presbyterian brothers and sisters, and we have some of them come and preach in our church, who affirms things that are different than our elder affirmation. But if R.C. Sproul, at least as it's set up right now, if R.C. Sproul was to come, to Minneapolis, he couldn't be a member at Bethlehem, nor could he be an elder at our church. Simply because he doesn't affirm certain things in our doctrinal statement. But we're not claiming that he is a heretic. The church has had to, and this is what denominations are, you're making certain claims about what you believe the Bible teaches, and yet... There is a, there's different levels of importance to doctrine. I'll touch on that in a second. Humans were not the result of an evolutionary process, but a distinct special creation. All the elders affirm that statement. Second of all, all of humanity everywhere and from all time derives from these two individuals. There are no humans that were not derived from Adam and Eve. There was one man and one woman from whom all mankind came and we believe they were Adam and Eve, the historical parents of the entire human race. Now, that's the elder affirmation. I'm going to comment on this a little bit more to let you know what it says and what it doesn't say. But in the history of interpretation, there's been these three major creationist views. Notice I call them all creationist views. There is young earth creationism, old earth creationism, and evolutionary creationism, which I grew up in a circle where the middle two were always blended as if they weren't distinct. If you held to an old earth, you held to evolution. But that, that's just not the case. There are numerous God-honoring people that believe in an old earth 
and yet would say the Bible does not allow for evolutionary processes in the way that it talks. Evolutionary creationism is what has often been called what? Okay. A word was just mentioned, intelligent design. Now, intelligent design would be, we heard actually an argument from intelligent design a few weeks ago from Pastor Jason, maybe it was a month and a half ago or so, when he was talking about a watchmaker and how people that say, I don't believe, I think everything in this world is here by chance. And Jason said, what? And he pulled out the watch and he said, if you were to just be walking on the street and you saw this little thing, would you all of a sudden say, oh, that was here by chance? Well, it may have fallen down by chance at one level, but was it made by chance? Of course not. It's a watch. Well, what tells you that it had to have been made? Well, it's extremely detailed in its precision. You can't just put all the parts together and have it work like this. It doesn't just happen by accident. And he said, hello, look at our world. Look at the human body. Look at the stars. Look at our atmosphere. Think about gravity. It demands a designer. But intelligent design folks, at least as I understand it, are not restricted to any one of these models. But intelligent design folks could be young earth creationists, old earth creationists, or evolutionary creationists. What intelligent design is doing and is, is arguing there is a creator. Now that stated, what is the term that's normally been applied to evolutionary creationism? Theistic evolution. So the emphasis is on evolution, and there's major circles still today, um, and I have many friends that work with certain organizations that attribute, um, if you have this word in the mix, evolution, you cannot also put this word in the mix, creation. But there are many, many believers who hold to evolution. All of these, I, I think this is a, a helpful way to frame it, all of these are creationists of different sorts. And at all of these affirm supernaturalism over naturalism. None of these say all you have is nature. Every one of them says God is the big mover in space and time making everything happen. He is the creator and without him there would be nothing else. All of them are affirming that. Supernaturalism over naturalism. And all affirm that God alone created and upholds the universe. Second note. The Bethlehem Elder Affirmation of Faith declares that our church does not permit its leaders to hold to theistic evolution. 
We have pastors and professors, hear that, we have pastors and professors who are both young earth creationists and old earth creationists. But as best as I'm aware, we don't have any that are evolutionary creations. And our elder affirmation of faith states it that way. Because we affirm in our elder affirmation, I sh maybe I should say this more clearly, the Bethlehem Elder Affirmation of Faith declares that our church does not permit its leaders to hold to theistic evolution of man. That's probably what I should say more clearly. Because it, that, that's where it, it makes it explicit. It doesn't go beyond that. So it requires a special creation of man. And in the early 2000s, when the elders were wrestling with this, and I think it was approved in, in 2000 or 2001, Steve, I don't know if you remember, it was, it was right around there, um, they wrestled hard with what will we say and what will we not say. So I think I should probably add, hold to a theistic evolution of man, and then I will affirm that we have pastors and elders and professors who are on both young earth and old earth folks. Now, that's stated, so, so for example, at least last time I talked to him, and it was several years ago, Pastor Jason Meyer was a young earth creationist by conviction. And John Beckman, my counterpart at Bethlehem, Old Testament professor, who also has his PhD in electrical engineering, <coughs> not too often you get a double PhD guy, but he has his PhD in electrical engineering and a PhD in Hebrew Semitics. And he is a older creationist who doesn't think the Bible allows for evolutionary process but he also doesn't think it requires a young earth, and he thinks the science pushes things toward an old earth. And at Bethlehem, we have declared that's okay. There's, there's an openness to that, that, that we're not going to come down and say the Bible requires on this issue. And there's lots of things that we haven't declared the Bible requires. For example, different millennium, millennial views. So we have amillennialists. They don't say ah usually means not, but they, they don't affirm an, a non-existent millennium. They just think that it's happening right now. You have premillennialists that think Jesus will return before the 1,000 years that's mentioned in Revelation 20. Rather than that we're living the 1,000 years. And then you have postmillennialists that think that the millennium is, is still future, but it's, it's the climax of a glorious period where things will get better rather than worse. And then Jesus will return. And then there's probably in this room some pan-millennialists that just affirm it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> and Bethlehem's okay with it. We don't make that statement in our elder affirmation of faith. Whereas there are a number of denominations that actually say, this is a deal breaker for us, and we're going to require that all of our elders hold to a certain view. And we've said, 
no, we're not going to require that of our elders. So one area that we are requiring is that none of them can hold to the theistic evolution of man. Now, that's stated, so you've got people like Pastor Jason and Dr. Beckman, or Dr. Meyer, Dr. Beckman, and then I want to note this. Bethlehem does not declare evolutionary creationism heretical. I've never heard anyone talk this way. If they did, it would actually hinder some of the people that I think we've had come and preach in our church. Bethlehem does not declare evolutionary creationism heretical, and we have close relationships with Christians who hold to it, including some who attend Bethlehem. I mean, some of you here may actually hold to an evolutionary creationism, and we're not kicking you out the door. This is not part of what it takes to be a member at Bethlehem. Would that mean that perhaps, per se, that like Noah had two dogs on the ark with all the genetic material necessary to create all the dog breeds we have today? No. An evolutionary creationism <laughs> does not, is not talking about um, adaptation within species. All these models would affirm adaptation within species. What it would be questioning is that uh, evolutionary creationism would be supporting the view that the dog could in time become an ape. And, and ultimately a man. And Bethlehem's elders have said, we don't think the Bible actually allows for that kind of an understanding of how God did things. But someone like Tim Keller, how many have received benefit from Tim Keller's ministry? I have. And he's an evolutionary creationist. How many have received benefit from Wayne Gruden's ministry? He's an old earth creationist. How many, well, I won't ask, have received benefit from my ministry. But, uh, <laughs> Well, I'll let you know where I fall in just a second. Oh, I received that. Okay. Thanks, Paul. So, I, I, what I'm wanting to make clear here is that all three, you can hold to all three of these views and affirm inerrancy. What you're doing is actually, though, you're going to read certain texts in different ways. And say, well, what you think this text actually requires in space and time, I'm going to call it more literary art. And that that's actually what was intended. That when the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that God took dust and shaped it into a man, and breathed into it the breath of life, that that's actually not declaring something. Um, it, it's using artistic, figurative language to talk about another reality. 
that God used part of his creation to bring about mankind. Evolutionary creationists would talk just that way. And they would say, look, Genesis 2-7 teaches that. God used part of his creation to bring about mankind. Whereas we as elders have declared, no, the, that verse, Genesis 2-7, actually doesn't allow for that. And the rest of Scripture doesn't seem to teach that. It actually requires a special, distinct creation of man from dust. But I, but I hope you can see where... that um, Bethlehem has narrowed its box, but in narrowing its box, we're, I haven't heard any pastors declare that we're talking about inerrancy here if you're outside this box. And part of the way the question was framed to me was, hold, holding that the Bible is without error, are we required to believe a 24-hour day, natural day creation week, and a 6,000-year-old earth. And I'm just stepping back to say, right off the bat, no. But you are required to go in accordance with your conscience and your reading of the text. And if the arguments put forth from Scripture call you to hold something that you are required under God to hold. If your conscience says, this is what I think the Bible requires me to hold. And if you come to the conviction that the Bible actually doesn't require that, then because the Bible provides the lens for us to read the world rightly. And we have to believe that the world and the word are going to go perfectly hand in hand because both of them come from the same God who is consistent in his being. And so my friend John Beckman, he doesn't think the Bible requires a young earth. And as he reads the science, it pushes him toward an older, but, but he's also very quick to say, if the Bible, if I can be shown that the Bible requires a young earth, then I will that quick, that quick, change my position and ask God to help me understand the science in fresh ways. Because the Bible is our highest authority at Bethlehem. Uh, let me say one more thing, and then I'll come back to this slide. If you were to get a sliver that was in the wrong place, always at the wrong time, and you went to the emergency room, there would be a certain nurse who is equipped to assess your situation. And depending on where that sliver was and the size, I mean, if it's this big and it's sticking out your ear and it's coming through on the other side, they probably assess pretty important. Let's get him in. But, but if it was a sliver underneath your toenail and somebody comes in after you who's holding their head in their hand, <laughs> then all of a sudden that nurse has been equipped to be able to assess Levels of importance. 
We call it triage. And there is, I find it helpful just to help me put things in order to think about what we believe is true in a theological triage. There are first level issues that if you don't affirm them, you will not be a Christian. That Jesus died and rose physically from the dead for our sins. If you don't affirm that, you've, you, you have totally um, redefined who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian. This is a top-tier issue that is essential to Christianity. Brother David. And alongside that, how about in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? And that, that would be a, an absolute necessity that if you don't affirm the God in the beginning before everything and that everything comes from him, that would um, historically be put into a top-tier issue. Reasonable boundaries is level two. These are the areas that usually make it very difficult for two pastors, if they hold to different views of this, or churches or denominations, it's hard to have certain organisms work together if you hold to different views of this. For example, it's, it's difficult to have different views of God's bigness. Historically, Calvinism versus Arminianism. It's distinguished denominations because, and these are usually, level two issues are usually the, the biggest hot button issues in the church because most are aligned with top tier issues, authority of scripture, the trinity, the substitutionary work of Jesus' death, God is creator of all things. But it's the second tier issues, like baptism, like the roles of men and women in ministry, at times, the issue we're addressing here today, how to understand create what creationisms, but... Um, I, I don't think creationism would be more usually put into that second category, but the um, these are reasonable boundaries, reasonable meaning that they're well-reasoned and usually grounded in texts. When you go to different denominations, they are not there by accident. They're there because they believe the Bible teaches this, and they can build an argument. And the next church is going to have their own arguments, and it doesn't mean both are right. It means one's wrong and one's right, or they're both wrong. But they can't both be right if they're saying two totally different things. And yet the church has said, at times, Paul and Barnabas have to separate. They have to choose. They love each other, but they cannot agree on this matter, and so they have to go in different directions. 
And the church historically, that's how denominations have been created, usually over second tier issues. Third tier issues are minor disagreements where you and I might disagree. Things, I believe, like the millennium or the age of the earth. And where pastors can be working side by side and shepherding people and it's going to create some tensions because one elder says one thing and a different elder says a different thing but but we can work through that and, and usually we can figure a way to move ahead a there are challenges as we look up here for, for example, I'll, I'll just put this on record. I think that Bethlehem has historically had significant challenges because our elders, on something that's usually a second-tier issue, our elders have not come to agreement. Divorce and remarriage. And it's historically made it very difficult for our church to minister well. Because we don't have an agreement on what is usually a second-level issue rather than a third-level issue. Because it's such, it's so highly pastoral. And it impacts home after home after home. This issue here, now Bethlehem has, as you look at our other affirmation, we are strongly affirming top-tier issues. But we're also affirming some second-tier issues, and we're even, at times, affirming some third-tier issues. For example, um, our stress on Christian hedonism, even though it so defines our church, there are many pastors who are Christian hedonists who are on staff teams with brothers who affirm the lordship of Jesus, and that Jesus is Savior, but don't think about him as treasure. And we've put that into the mix. And it's a big part of our statement of faith. But it's probably not a second-tier issue, at least in the way that... I mean, it's so fundamental in our understanding of who God is and why God does what he does. And so, so I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking off the cuff here. But we've got different... We've got different types of issues, and whether this creationism issue is third or second tier is um, perhaps difficult to assess. The fact that we as elders have said you can be older, young earther suggests that the elders as a whole are making this a third tier issue because it's not, it's not a thing that's distinguishing our pastors. You can... You can be a pastor at our church and hold to either view, and it's not an issue, much like the millennium. We have, we have leaders who are amillennialists, postmillennialists, and premillennialists at our church. So, but we've also declared that there are boundaries, and one of them for our church is that we won't have evolutionary creationists on our team. So, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that evolutionary and there's two, two kinds of that because you said theistic evolution of man. Is right. There, uh, 
Yes, I could see and I engaged with some who would affirm the special creation of humanity and yet an evolutionary process look read the fossil record as a testimony to um, evolutionary processes. So, and yet mankind's presence in their reading of the fossil record is not a testimony to now we move up to a higher level species or whatever we call it. Whatever that that is that that um, but they would say it's just at this point in the long history that God chose to make me. So they, some, some evolutionary creationists would say, yes, mammals came from reptiles, but Adam did not come from some other creature. Correct. And that belief would be okay with the elder African faith if, if they believe that a human, that Adam did not come from a creature, but maybe other animals did. Um, my... And Steve, you've been, you've been a part of some of these, at least you've been on the team. Um, my reading of this text would say that you could be, you could affirm this text in good conscience so long as you affirm the special distinctive creation of mankind from the dust, from a literal physical dust. And anything else, is there's still openness to that. And at the time when this was crafted, I know of one elder who would have affirmed evolutionary, the, the views I just espoused, he would have affirmed evolution of everything else except humanity. And he was on the elder team when this was voted on. I don't know the present state of the so elder team. Some kind of evolutionary As I read this, all it, all it stresses is that we believe that God directly created Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from his side. We believe that Adam and Eve were the historical parents of the entire human race. That, that, that seems to require only a statement about the way God created humanity. I agree with that reading. I never, to be honest, I never thought of that distinction. You know, I've thought of the um, old earth the young earth and then the evolutionist and thinking that this reading would out would not be in alignment with the evolutionary creationist but I think yeah your distinction would make sense with that and I didn't know the history of that of that one elder I will say um, I'm thinking of a funny story it, it may not. It may not have. The shapers of this document, and, and I, as I've talked to Pastor John, who was the original framer, and then the elders who affirmed it, um, there are times where they're working through this thing, and they're not anticipating all the potential readings. They know what their intent is. So Pastor John's intent, and the original elders who helped draft it and then present it to the whole board. Their intent may not have been to include a window for any theistic evolution models. But I, I do know of one elder who wasn't on the shaping committee that was able to read this and say, I can affirm that. And yet he still held to something else. And whether the rest of the elder team knew that, I don't know. 
Now, let me just pause at this point, either with this up or any, any of these screens, because we haven't actually gotten into the Bible yet, but um, all this demands me to rework my question. But any, any other questions from you before we continue for the time? I'm just someone who has enjoyed Tim Keller's books immensely, but I really wonder about his position with evolutionary creationism. How do you come up with a historical Adam? I mean, if that question were put to him, how do you think he would answer that? I think he would affirm, he, he definitely, without question, strongly affirms a historical Adam. My, and he's written on this, but I, I haven't read what he's written. Uh, so if anybody has, you can jump in. But my assessment is in engaging other brothers who absolutely affirm a historical Adam, but affirm evolutionary creationism. It's that um, a previous hominid, caveman, gave rise to human. That hominid was not human. But now, at this point, in the evolutionary model, now we have man and woman. We have humans in the image of God, and this previous life form was not in the image of God. But at this point, in the process, now, all of a sudden, God's able to declare, this is human. And... What this also requires, and now I'm going beyond Tim Keller and going to this other elder, that previous elder that I had engaged with, is that the, in all likelihood, for example, who were Cain's wives? They were probably cave women, these previous hominids, but the offspring that came from them were considered human and still flowing from Adam and Eve because Cain was offspring of Adam and Eve. And only those who sprung from Adam and Eve as human were considered man and woman, people, humans, in the image of God. So it's it's a it's his affirming historical Adam and Eve that all of humanity came from them and that but, but they were belonged to at this peak of evolutionary process. I don't understand how it all works if there's, the earth is filled with hominids and only these two carry on the evolutionary process. I don't understand how it all works, but I, I'm guessing that's how it would probably be responded to. Because there's no question Tim Keller strongly affirms Historical Adam strong, and it's absolutely necessary for the gospel. Yeah. I believe the gospel hinges on whether Adam was a real person or not, because all people have to either be in Adam or in Jesus. Those are the only two options that we see laid out before us, and both the New Testament and the Old Testament talk about the significance of Adam's sin in bringing the world under a curse. Bethany? In Genesis, the word for day, does that represent a literal 24-hour period in the original language, or a mass of time? So now we're getting into 
the actual question, right? <laughs> but, but I, uh, so we're going to, that's where we're headed. Okay. But I wanted, I, I hope this is helpful to step back. My, here's, here's how I, I need to redefine the question. Here's my redefined question. Deroshi, why do you hold to young earth creationism, believing that God created a mature earth in six 24-hour periods in a literal week, and that the earth is extremely young, six to 10,000 years old? Why do you hold to that view, Deroshi? Show me from the word. And that's what I want to do over this week and next, and it, it may take another week. And even though this week and the beginning of next, we will be focused in Genesis 1. Most of my argument for the young earth doesn't come from the book of Genesis at all. It comes from all the rest of the Bible. And but I will say this. I don't believe there's any silver bullet argument. Like, if you can just play this card, you'll trump everybody. And I, I personally haven't found that. But I do think I can build a cumulative argument that's going to give clarity for why I, as a Bible guy and not a science guy, and there are scientists in here. And you're going to be able to offer perspectives to people that I can't offer. And probably be able to help me in ways that I haven't thought about. But... Someone asked me the question, so I get to answer it. <laughs> so, my question is this. Daroshi, why do you put yourself in the young earth camp, holding to a mature earth God created in six 24-hour periods in a literal week, and why do you think that the earth is young? And those are two different questions. And we will address the first, and then we'll address the second. So here's my view in synthesis. Roughly six to 10,000 years ago, God created the universe and all life in six successive natural days marked by evenings and mornings and the pattern set forth in Genesis 1. So this is the view that I think is most biblical. But I say that within the full affirmation of everything I've just said before. That I don't think we're dealing with inerrancy here. We're dealing with weighing out evidence to try to discern what is the most likely reading of the text. But it's, so we're not dealing with, um, do you love God as much as I do? Or even, are you as surrendered to the authority of Scripture as I am? That's not what we're talking about. So, I, I hope that that's all clear. <coughs> so, your Bibles are open. Genesis 1. Amen. Why did you say the universe instead of the earth? You just changed. The universe. Are you saying, okay, we're right here? 
Um, why do you hold to young earth believing that God created a mature earth in six 24-hour periods in a literal week and that the earth is extremely young? And this last slide. Pardon? This last slide. This slide right here. Yes. There you go. So roughly six to 10,000 years ago, God created the universe and all life in six successive natural days marked by evenings and mornings. Um, in the patterns set forth in Genesis 1. You have written there, created the universe. The previous slide was talking about the world. Everything after this. The earth. earth. Said earth. Now you're saying universe. God yeah. created the yeah. mature earth in six 24 hour periods. The universe is all I guess it comes down to how to understand this verse. So what this slide does is gives you my reading, my 24-hour mature young earth view, and that's young earth creationism. So that's the general view, but I'm arguing that more than the earth, this is my view, I'm proposing that God created not just the earth in the beginning, but he created the universe in the beginning, and that our distance from the beginning including the universe, is only six to 10,000 years. And my, we start out here because, um, well, in the beginning, that's a time marker, a benchmark that describes the foundation building, um, when the foundation was built. And um, the I am somewhat familiar with changes in time, gravity, how it affects time, whether the universe is expanding, the implications of the possibility that we're in the center of the universe and how gravitational how gravity could influence our understanding of time so that what might be an hour here could be thousands of years out there. And so all of that is part, but um, so in six to 10,000 years, I, I should, roughly six to 10,000 years ago, God created the universe and life. This would be six to 10,000 Earth years. And I'm happy to add that in. In six to 10,000 Earth years, as we measure time right here, and even on our Earth, clocks, atomic clocks at the ocean register different time than atomic clocks at the top of the Rockies because of gravity, that it impacts things. So I, I understand that. My, so, but I'm wanting to say that six to 10,000 Earth years ago, God created not just the Earth, but the universe. And that all of life was created at that time in six successive natural days marked by evenings and mornings and the patterns set forth in Genesis. Um, now, Again, this will be a cumulative argument. 
and um, it may need to be tweaked after I dialogue with some of you. So, in the beginning versus in the end. We're living in the end. It's the last days. Peter is questioned, are all the people drunk? And he says, no, this is what Joel said would happen in the latter days. Started with the resurrection of Christ. Long ago, in various ways, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. The last days contrasts with the beginning. And we're looking backwards in time to the start of the time-space continuum, as I understand it. That's the beginning. He mentions heavens up there. Isn't that the creed? Isn't that the universe? Galaxies? We're going to look at that at the next, on the next slide. Good question. <laughs> so we got through in the beginning. Now we come to God. He's the sole actor. He's a Trinitarian creator that we understand the Father creates by his word. Let there be. And his spirit is there hovering over the waters. A Trinitarian God is how later authors understood this. In the text itself, we see God, we see him speaking, and we see his spirit hovering over the surface of the deep. Paul? Okay, this is more parenthetical, but when I studied this years ago, and actually looked at, okay, what were the Hebrew people, during the time of Moses, they were exposed to the Egyptian gods and all that, and started asking the question, well, what was their creation story? And much like with the Greeks and the Babylonians and all those other worldviews, it's like in the beginning there was stuff. And from that, the gods developed who then created us. But this is to totally anti what they had been taught or what they may have been exposed to. It was earth you know, It's an earth For us, we don't get it, but to them, it would have been huge. The, there, there's... As is often the case, we can read the Bible and understand it as it's given to us. It's when, though, we find stuff outside the Bible, like Egyptian creation accounts, that all of a sudden we understand, oh, I understood what the Bible was saying, but I didn't recognize that it was actually being written as an argument against other ideas, other worldviews. Let me correct. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is correcting misunderstandings of Scripture. Another parenthetical, again, to look at the evolutionary stuff, or argument, creation, which or origin. Again, you're coming up with, you first have stuff, everything else develops from. We're talking God created. God existed, the creator, uh, maybe, you know, creator intellect, nothing, which again, against what the world calls. Many of you know that this verb create only shows up with God as the doer in the Bible. No humans are ever said to create anything. God alone is the subject 
of creation. Now, God created, in the beginning, God created, and then we read in Genesis 2, 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. So there's a frame that happens here, like a bookend, and Genesis 1, 1 provides a, a one side of the frame, and then the work week ends with the mention that he finished. He created and he finished. And there's a process in between. So here's the question that was raised. How do we understand the heavens and the earth? What exactly did he create? My understanding is this is a merism, which is when you use two different parts to express the whole. In this instance, two polar opposites. There's heaven and earth, and there's two different views here. Either we're talking about the spiritual realm, the unseen realm, and the seen realm. So the earth is the seen realm, and the heavens, where God and the angels dwell, is, is the other realm. So what this view would be is give us clarity to where Satan came from. He was created in Genesis 1.1. As a, this is an overarching declaration. Whereas option two would be um, the heavens is atmosphere and space, so material world, and that the Bible actually never up front tells us when the spiritual world was created. That the heavens are that we're using the same exact language that um, we use later when it mentions the expanse the expanse at the base of which the birds fly, Earth's atmosphere, and at the farthest realm of which the stars and the sun and the moon are placed into the expanse, that is, the heavens. So two different options, two different potential interpretations here. Now, I'll come back to that in a second. The next question is this. When we read the title, In the Beginning God Created the Heavens and the Earth, the question is, is this the first event of the creation week? So that we would read it, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then he formed and he filled it. Or is this a summary statement simply declaring he did it? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and this is how he did it. Can you see the difference? One of them gives clarity to where the pre-existent matter came from. Now the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. It doesn't ever tell us that water was created. It just is. And the Spirit is there. And there's darkness. And it's formless, and it's void. It's uninhabitable, and it's uninhabited. There's just this mixed up conflation of elements and so as I look at these it, it is a little bit tricky um, and I don't have I, I can build my case but my, my general understanding right now as I'm looking at this is that we have a title rather than the first step in the process of creation. 
In the beginning, God's, God created the heavens and the earth. But that's the overarching title. Now let me tell you how he did it. And then it, just, it does jump in and tell us that before he said, let there be light, he already had something in the mix. That it, it doesn't tell us that when he made it. But nevertheless, um, it was there. I'm understanding it to be a, an overarching title. And I'm also understanding that the unseen heavens... That, that when it says he created the heavens and the earth, that he's actually talking about everything he created in the unseen and seen realm, not just the seen realm. And then he focuses in, in the very next verse to talk about the seen realm. And even in the seen realm, there's the earth, and then there's going to be an expanse, or the heavens. And those heavens, as I'm understanding it, are actually distinct from these heavens, but they are pictures of this of these heavens. So that when we look up into the sky and we see the atmosphere where the birds fly, and then we see where the sun, moon, and stars are placed, all of those are pictures to us of greater realities on the other side, so that the angels can be compared to the stars of the heavens. It doesn't impact a lot of my reading at this point, but I have a title, and I have what I believe in that title, a declaration that God made everything seen and unseen, including the devil at this moment. And now he's going to focus in on the material realm, and then in chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than the world, than any other beast of the field, all of a sudden we're going to see an intrusion of this spiritual realm into the material world. Genesis 1-2. And it looks like this is as far as we're going to get. <laughs> Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Creation was a process. It didn't just happen... It actually has process with it. And at the beginning, when God created, there was unmet potential. The start of day one included undifferentiated mass. So that it, there was, it was without form, or it was, we could translate it, uninhabitable, and it was void, uninhabited. It was lacking clear shape and distinction of the parts. Land and water were not distinguished at this point. Sky and earth were not distinguished at this point. And into this world, God creates. Now I think that from a literary perspective, this language of the earth was without form and void all of a sudden becomes a frame for understanding the rest of the chapter. Because what God's going to do is he's going to take that which has no form and give it form, and that which is empty and fill it. So in day one, you have light formed, and in day form, the agents through which God will give light are placed in the sky. These are the kingdoms, and these are the kings. Sky and seas are differentiated. We'll unpack this more clearly shortly next week. And then 
Those that are overseeing those spears, the birds and the sea creatures, are in day five. In day three, there's land is rises up out of the waters, and then vegetation comes, and then the land animals and the humans, those that are going to be inhabiting this sphere, show up, and then in day seven is the creation king's rest. So formless and void gets answered in the rest of the chapter. And the way that it gets answered is by a pattern of six plus one. And each of the six have a morning and an evening, a day and a night. Each of the six are called day one, day two, day three, day four, within the framework of a week. And the signals of morning, evening, day, night, the day ending formula, and the fact that there are seven of them is the first argument that you would read this as an actual week. That's just the basic framework. The basic framework is, the, is a work week where there are six days on and one day off. That is the basic pattern, and that's the natural reading of the text. But we have much more to say. Can you uh, tell us a little bit more about what the Hebrew language intends when it talks of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters? What I am able to say is that the question is what does the Hebrew Bible talk about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters? The, length, the verb hovering doesn't show up again in, in Moses' Pentateuch until Deuteronomy 32. When it describes the glory cloud hovering like an eagle over its young, leading Israel out of Egypt. Through its wasteland unto new creation. And consistently, and, and so what you have then is you have a glory cloud, which is God's presence on earth, which is being somehow identified with the Spirit. And intriguingly, in both Isaiah and Hosea, when they talk about God leading Israel out of Egypt, it calls the presence the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, it'll even call it. That the glory cloud, literally a cloud, when God enters in, nature changes. It grows dark, and there's thunder and lightning and billows of smoke and darkness. When God enters in, what we see is a cloud formation, a thunderstorm that instills fear, and it's called the Spirit of God. This same Spirit, that same word for Spirit, shows up in the flood narrative, not with the verb to hover, but it's the, the wind. God calls the wind to blow over the water, and he brings about his new creation out of the chaos. So the flood returns the world back into a watery chaos before it brings about a new creation with a new man, a new woman, and three sons. So the Spirit, when he shows up, he begins to image himself. And... In Ezekiel 1, when you get into the glory cloud, the thunderstorm is coming, and Ezekiel gets to go inside. What he sees is a throne room. 
He sees a palace or a temple with God seated on the throne. And so that's one reason why many people have seen what God is doing in Genesis 1 is he's building his earthly temple. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool where he sits seated on his throne through his spirit. And the temple on earth is a picture of this, um, where the spirit of God dwells. Now next week, um, next week I'm going to just overview quickly my understanding of the 24-hour thing and build my case, address potential questions just so you know where I'm coming from, and then, then I will offer a bigger picture from the Bible as to the age of the earth and engage Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, Ecclesiastes, and many other texts to give clarity to why I think why I think Jesus was a young earther. <laughs> I thought he was the creator. <laughs> so, um, may the Lord help us all as we process through these things. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.